Bridging the gap between the eye test and the analytics, it's the Staff and Graph Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Dory and Ian Tullock. Welcome to the Staff and Graph Podcast. Ian, how you doing with no hockey? I'm doing okay. It's been a bizarre week or two here, this quarantine has made a lot of people realize what it's like to work from home and, and be in the same room all day. This has been my life for the past couple of months, so I've <laughs> been uh, a bit more used to it than other people. I have some tips if anyone's looking for advice right now. Getting out of the house maybe once a day to go for a walk and staying six feet away from anyone. I think it's a good idea just to get some sunlight, but I've been doing okay. How are you doing? Pretty good. Um, Just kind of, I'm pretty used to having to be health conscious so it's the new hand washing stuff isn't news to anybody in my family but going I would say a bit stir crazy I think I'm on day 13 of lockdown like complete lockdown so um kind of missing just being able to I drive my car um so I don't know but we're managing and obviously it's for the good of the general public so it's worth it Yeah, and we're not experts when it comes to the coronavirus, but we tried our best to put out that podcast, I want to say that was two weeks ago, where we put out the pod just kind of detailing what we know about it so far, deferring to experts. But we're going to proceed with the podcast talking about hockey and hockey tactics because I think that's what we do best. And for people who are looking for some kind of normalcy throughout these weird times, we're going to try to return to the normal schedule that we've gone with, you know, every Tuesday talking about something new in hockey And since there aren't any live games, we're going to do our best to break down some of the deeper discussions when it comes to kind of certain philosophical things in the game. Today, we're going to be talking about the differences between even strength and the power play. And I think this is a good idea because me and you have talked about this in private in the past. I'm of the opinion that these. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, our text threads can get pretty hectic sometimes. Oh, they can get hectic, heated. But they're also like super informational. Like if someone got a hold of our text thread, I feel like there's gold in there. It's good stuff. It reminds me of kind of a a nerdy version of PTI where like Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon are just screaming at each other. But like we're also throwing charts in there because we're nerds. Yeah, it's not Stephen A. Smith and Skip. It's none of that nonsense. I love Stephen A. Smith. (laughs) (laughs) He's so entertaining. He's a meme. He's he's a caricature. But when we're discussing this over text threads, we're getting into some angry debates because I'm of the opinion that 5-on-5 five five and 5-on-4 five or even strength in the power play in hockey, I'm of the opinion that's basically two different sports. So let's dive right into that because I think the biggest uh, difference right off the bat is that on the power play, one team has possession and the other team doesn't. Whereas at even strength, I feel like possessions are so difficult to determine because one team will lose the puck and then the other team will lose the puck and it's just a bunch of semi-structured chaos at even strength whereas on the power play things really slow down and you can kind of see the team who has the power play is trying to break down the penalty kill in more of a slow kind of structured way and to me that just has always separated it from even strength play to me it just seems so different from what we're used to watching at five and five I think from just kind of talking and interacting with coaches and even players like obviously the huge difference is there's more space because there's one or two or however many less players and that though they take up in a large amount of space and so realistically what you're doing is you have your tactics that you use but all they are are just adjusted so that you can capitalize on that extra space there's a lot of teams that really don't make a whole lot of switches to their breakout or like they might they might have the drop pass but that's to take advantage of that extra space but you're still breaking out using your defenseman you're still playing like four forwards one d which realistically has become the norm now and so all you're doing is adjusting the tactics that you use five on five and maybe a little bit more set plays because you know you have that space But there's one difference right off the bat there. Four forwards, one defense. That's something I've advocated for when teams are losing in the third period. You know, last 10 minutes. (laughs) 
when when you need a goal, uh, why not put another forward on the ice when you really need it? But we haven't really seen that at even strength, at least at the NHL level. So to me, right off the bat, there's one major difference there. You have more firepower offensively on the ice. Yeah, you definitely do. And what's interesting is there are some coaches that are trying this. Like I remember when I worked for the Devils, John Hines and I would have this back and forth. And then one time he tried it and we scored. And it was kind of just, I had just had this smirk on my face and he just laughed. Um, so coaches that are willing to kind of try it um, and just try new things in general, the four forwards thing works. We do it at York. Um, the women's team does it quite a bit. If we're in the offensive zone for a long time, like the coach will just throw out a fourth forward just to kind of try and extend that possession. So it's one of those things where you don't just have to use it if you're down. You can use it to capitalize on tired forwards or tired uh, defensive coverage, right? After an icing or something like that. You use it sparingly. Obviously, you're not going to play with four forwards the whole game. That would be sort of irresponsible. Um, But you can use it situationally. And it's just that kind of innovation and creativity that I'd like to see more of. I mean... This isn't for today's podcast, but a three-forward penalty kill is something I want to see tested Are out you just crazy? to see if it works. Is that completely insane? <laughs> yes. Is that just nuts? Because how many net, how many forwards do you know how to play net front passes? Well, no, but that's why I'd go with more of a one defenseman kind of stays stationary in the middle of the ice, kind of like a diamond, and then three kind of buzzing forwards around to take away passing so lanes. So you but- want to play a diamond? Yeah, yeah, okay. I want to play a diamond, and I want my three fastest skaters taking away passing lanes, or at least my three most disruptive kind of puck pursuit guys. And then my one kind of Nicholas Jalmerson, Ron Hainsey, Zidane Char in the middle there taking away all the, the backdoor passes. So when you're playing, I say when you play on the penalty kill, you're if you're a power play unit, it's more of a, and you can definitely explain this better, it's a set defense, right? Because they're either in a diamond shape or a box, whereas... The D-zone coverage 5-on-5 five five or even strength is, is much different, right? You could be playing man-on-man, you could be doing switches, but realistically, like, there, it's not really a set defense like it would be in, I would I don't know, maybe the NBA? Yeah, so that's the biggest thing to me when I'm thinking about the power play. Eric Parnas was really the first one who broke this down. I think he did it on Dmitry Filipovich's podcast, and then I read a lot of his work where he was doing the special teams project. He put out that really cool article uh, about the Zephyr rate on the power play and all that basically means is zone entries or uh, a shot off the rush is the best way to uh, predict future goals on the power play. He did a lot of really cool work before. <laughs> Noted Colorado's- extremely smart person, Arik Parnas. <laughs> yep. Yeah, uh, Colorado snatched him up. They also snatched up uh, Dawson, better known as uh, don't tell me about heart, but loved <laughs> Eric Parnas's work. And what he described the power play as in hockey is you're breaking down a set defense the same way uh, maybe a a football team does, where, you know, before the play, you can see the defensive alignment, you can make adjustments, and then you're calling the play and you're running the play. In basketball, you have a set defense. You have the five-man defense that you're trying to break down slowly. At even strength, you don't really get that opportunity because things are just happening so fast. You know, you have a guy right on top of you. You just have to get rid of the puck because otherwise you're going to turn it over. On the power play, you have a lot more time. You have a lot more space. If you look at a team who's in the offensive zone, in formation with the puck, someone's wide open on the half wall or at the blue line. You have time to break down that defense. And I think that's why, strategically, things change so much, in my opinion. Because at 5-on-5, five five, it's really hard to create that seam pass unless it's off the rush. If you're creating a seam pass in the offensive zone off the cycle... Odds are the opposition's going to be taking that away. You know, they're going to collapse in front of their net. Look at the Barry Trot system. Just, you're not going to have those cross slot passes. Whereas on the power play. It's a completely, you're right. It's a completely different transition game. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, to me, that's the biggest difference there is that you say that, okay, well, there's more time and there's more space. To me, that completely changes the game because now all of a sudden different strategies are going to work better. If I think of certain skill sets that work better at 5-on-5 versus on the power play, I'm going to think of a Michael Grabner, a Carl Hagelin, uh, a Kasperi Kapanen type. At even strength, those guys work really well because they can counterattack. You know, they get up the ice fast off of a turnover. They create 2-on-1s. They create 3-on-2s. On the penalty kill, they're super annoying because of their speed. 
on the power play, those guys are kind of useless because once you've set up in the offensive zone and you're trying to break down a defense, those guys actually aren't that good at breaking down the defense. They're only good at skating north-south, getting up the ice, and using their speed. But on the on the power play, the opposition's ready for that. They're going to back up. They're going to prevent you from generating some kind of odd man rush. And they're going to dare you to set up in formation and try to break us down that way. Speedy guys who can only take advantage of their speed and don't have the kind of vision or passing ability to break down a set defense, that doesn't really work on the power play. Right, and then you have somebody, like someone that has the opposite skill set, and I don't think this is as accurate now, but it sure was maybe a season ago with Patrick Laine, right? He's got that absolute bomb from the Ovechkin spot, but... Paul Maurice talked ad nauseum about how it just wasn't complete and he ended up on the third line, but then he's a key part of your power play. So it's one of those things where guys like Grabner and Kapanen do things at even strength that aren't necessarily as useful on the power play. And then you have a guy like Line who right now isn't as useful at even strength, but on the power play, he's one of the best, like, best weapons in the league. So I think there's twofold there. Yeah, there are some other guys I can think of. I mean, Martin Furk is kind of a poor man's Lane or a broke man's Lane, and that he has nowhere he near the shot. Like 109 miles an hour. He has an incredible shot on the power play, but at five on five, he's just someone you can't have out there against good opponents because he's very bad defensively. Maybe Brandon Peary is another example of a guy who just when you put him on the ice in offensive situations, that guy can get you goals. But coaches never trust him against, you know, good offensive players because he'll blow his assignment and now it's an odd man rush the other way. Yeah, there's definitely players that specialize that are better at even strength and that's probably why they don't play on the power play. But then vice versa, those players that you mentioned, all three of them are very good penalty killers. And so I think it's one of those things where they might not be your best power play guys but realistically they're probably playing on the penalty kill because of that speed because they can force and statistics show that teams who have a power kill are more effective at first i thought you meant that patrick lane martin furk were were penalty kill specialists and i got really worried uh no (laughs) that would be i think i would probably have some concerns if i saw either one of them out on the penalty kill but yeah, those speedsters, those little, uh, like the Haglins, the Grabners, the Kapanins, those guys who just close the gap in a hurry, they pick off a pass and they're gone, that has a lot of value in the penalty kill. Yes. And so I think transition's likely where you see the biggest difference in terms of statistics. Obviously, like, you can't, we can't talk about in zone play without saying that more scoring chances are created on the power play and as they should be. Um, but, in transition, you can really see it because it's way harder to set up a neutral zone defense. Out of curiosity, per minute, let's say per 60 minutes, the scoring chances that you generate on the power play relative to even strength, is it about double or triple? Uh, so Sport Logic does it per two minutes of power play time. Um, and I want to say it is tr- almost triple. If I'm like the top teams are, are triple. So well, yeah, the, the, the bad teams, the teams who there are some teams who there's one every year who scores more at even strength than they do on the power play, like per 60 minutes. And it's just pathetic. And there's also, I think Arizona had a really good PK year. And at one point their uh, goals per 60 on the PK out was outperforming their goals at even strength per 60. That's the Michael Grabner effect, baby. Just give me more breakaways. <laughs> yes. But most of the time, I want to say for like 29 or 30 of the 31 teams, your penalty kill is obviously not going to score as many goals per 60 minutes as even strength. And your power play is going to drastically outperform you at even strength, as it should. That just all makes sense. What I'm wondering when it comes to uh, a power play is we look at the goals for a lot of the times we tend to ignore the goals against. Uh, this is something where we were talking about the four forward, uh, one defense power play in the past. You give up more goals against when you go more aggressively on the power play. That's but how most it of works, the time yes. <laughs> the pros outweigh the cons. And right. someone who I think of when I when I'm looking at this is Tori Krug. If you ever watch him on Boston's power play, 
He'll swap with Marchand. He'll swap with Pasternak sometimes. He'll swap with Bergeron. He loves getting into open space in the offensive zone. And if he sees that, you know, Marchand has come up to the blue line to pick up a puck, Krug will go into the slot and cover for Marchand because he sees the open space. He wants the one-timer. He has that shot, and he can take advantage of the defense. That gets Boston more goals on the power play, and it's smart. It also leads to more odd man rushes against, and they give up more goals against than most teams on the power play. And if you look at uh, shorthanded goals given up, Boston's always among the league leaders. But, but then they also, also always have a top five power play. And that the pros outweigh the cons. And this is where I'm always advocating for more risk to be taken in professional sports. But it has to be calculated like- risk. Like, you can't just send all five forwards in under, like, below the dot line, let's say. Do it. Five no. below the goal line. We were talking about behind the net power play. Get all five down there. No. Just do it. Absolutely no, that would be a terrible do idea, obviously. Yeah. It has to but- be a calculated risk. So, like, Tori Krug is a good example, right? He sees that open space. He takes it. He knows that someone else is going to cover for him in the event that the puck gets turned over. But you can't just say okay full send everyone and then you have four guys in the corner the puck pops loose and now the pk is racing three on one right it's gonna be calculated risk and that's not even just on the power blade that's at even strength too and i think from in talking to coaches part of the reason that they don't play four forwards at even strength is because the forwards are their calculated risk generally tells them to go in and not to hang back whereas the d actually reads the play and and they'll understand the risk reward and are way less likely to make a bonehead decision that results in a odd man rush against and that makes sense like it does if you're playing for thomas vanix yeah you're gonna run into a lot of trouble but what if you have a very strong defensive player out there who's basically your second defenseman, but he's a bit more aggressive offensively. I'm thinking, you know, the the worker B, you know, that th- the, the third player, how we were talking about complimentary players a few months ago, the Zach Hyman's of the world, the Patrick Hornquist's of the world, uh, you know, the Ryan O'Reilly's, Patrice Bergeron's. If you have one of those guys out there and then three other guys who can score along with a defenseman, I feel like it could work. See, that's... I just... There, I will not advocate for playing four forwards on a consistent regular basis. I will advocate for it situationally. I will not advocate for it on a regular basis. Because I just think, you said it yourself like not five minutes ago, you give up more when you play four forwards. And the reality is, is eventually you're going to give up enough that your goaltender is not going to be able to stop it all the time. Much like anything, I think you take more risks when you're losing because you need goals. And even if you give up a few extra, you really need that goal. So if you're winning in a game, you're obviously never going to think about putting a fourth forward out there. But if you're losing in the third period and you need something to help break down the defense, I really like the idea of it. And again, we see it on the power play. We never see it at even strength. I just think it's something we need to see a bit more of. Yeah, and the reason that you don't see it, and we've talked about this a lot, is coach, coaches are risk-adverse, right? And you can't really blame them considering how GMs can just fire them at a moment's notice, even though that it's partially not even their fault most of the time. And this is the difference between being a fan of the sport and just wanting to see more innovation and creativity out there. But the way I've had it explained to me, and it's a good way of explaining it, is if you're innovative and you get something right then the other 30 teams are just going to copy you and you're not going to gain much of a competitive advantage anyways. You're innovative and you're wrong, you don't have a job. Yeah, all of a sudden, you know, (laughs) your your financial uh, situation isn't looking too good. Uh, Are you going to be able to feed your family next year? I got to be honest, if I'm in, in that coach's position, I'm probably not taking too many risks either. So I understand it. I just think if you have the job security and you have the organizational buy-in where you can go to your GM, you can go to your ownership, whoever it is who's in charge of you know firing you, and, and you say, look, this is a strategy. I think it'll work. We need to test it out. And if it doesn't work, you need, be, you need to be okay with that. You need to be okay with this maybe blowing up in our face, but we need to test it to see if it can work. And there aren't too many situations like that in the league, but there are more than you'd think. I would say, if you look around the league right now, who has that license? Sheldon Keefe definitely hasn't, because Kyle Dubas is his GM. And Well, I mean, a lot of GMs and coaches kind of have that synergy. I mean, some of them don't, mm, obviously. But... You would be shocked, because it's not just that. You have... there's. 
this should not come as a surprise to you. Very cranky ownership. Like, I can tell you, this would not fly in Boston. And Jeremy Jacobs Or I'm thinking Vancouver, where it's just they're desperately trying to make the playoffs. And if you try something and it doesn't work, ownership's probably really mad at you. Yep. Like, it's it's one of those things where it's so volatile and owners are invested. It's not like, however, they made their money in the business world where they're consistently looking at, yes, we're taking risks, but they're very much calculated where it's like, this is like, oh, we're just going to try it. And if it doesn't work, now you've lost out potentially on playoff revenue. And it's... I just, they're way more volatile with their hockey teams than they are with their businesses. How much are owners in, let's say hockey for now, maybe sports could be a, another topic after, but in hockey, how much are they meddling in kind of the day-to-day stuff? Because they obviously care about the long-term results. They obviously care about, well, our team's on track to make the playoffs. Our team looks like they're going to miss the playoffs. What the heck? But if it's just a decision that you made on a Tuesday night against the Ottawa Senators... Are they really paying attention? Because I feel like they have other businesses that they need to keep track of. So we'll get to a specific owner in the Kovalev shift because I have some things to say. But I would say that there are some owners aren't as involved. Like, for example, Larry Tannenbaum, the most he's involved is like, well, what checks do I need to sign and greeting players in the dressing room after? He's not meddling in like, this coach should be doing this. No, he understands that... These people, he pays them a ton of money to do their job and they need to do their job. And then you have other owners that like to have weekly calls with the entire management staff and then call the GM three times a day asking about various things and are in the dressing room talking to players and all of that lovely stuff on a regular basis. Does any of that work? I've always wondered if that's ever worked because I think of Dan Snyder in Washington. I think of all the stories you hear about Jerry Jones with the Cowboys. You hear James Dolan with the Knicks. I mean, there's so many negative stories from owners meddling, but then we also wanted to make fun of the Carolina owner. Uh, His name's escaping me Tom Dundon. Yeah, but things have gone really well for them over the last year or two. So is that yeah? But he really needed to step in and make some changes. And from what I understand, he's taken a like a step back in terms of the day to day decisions. Um, but okay, so this is what I will say: owners that are super meddly and ask for all of this stuff, you're taking the focus from your staff away from the team because they're they end up doing work for the ownership and spending time on that instead of working on stuff for the team and for the coaching staff and then the team doesn't get better and it's like well you know what maybe if I didn't spend seven hours putting some deck together for you and I was working on something for our head coach or our goalie coach or whomever then maybe he would have had that information to help him out and make a decision no but instead you wanted a deck on the differences in whatever or I don't even god knows what requests they get um but you're taking time away from people in management or wherever to make reports for ownership when realistically that time you're paying those people to help your hockey team like just you get your monthly reports or whatever you have set up you don't need to be calling people three times a day I think this is analogous to any other industry where if you have someone at the top of the chain who's doing that kind of petty stuff, it's usually not too beneficial. The best leaders are the types who can delegate, the types who can understand which people are responsible for what, train them to do those roles properly, and then kind of let them go. You Mm -hmm. know, you are going to keep track of things to make sure everything's on the right track. But micromanaging to the nth degree, that usually doesn't work out too well. Yeah, like, there is no one on earth that enjoys being thrown out of bed at 2 o'clock in the morning because you woke up from a dream wanting to figure something out. Like, that email can wait till 7 a.m. It, like, it doesn't need to be solved And again, right my away. texts about uh, why I have this crazy hockey idea, Rachel definitely needs to know about those. Those definitely need to interrupt her Friday night drinking sessions. At not even that. They don't need to interrupt my Sunday sleep at 2 a.m. Like... <laughs> It's ridiculous. Anyway, we should get back to five on five and five on four because sorry, we got carried away with owners. Ownership talk always fascinates me, just because I'm never and we have ownership talk later in the podcast. Yeah, it is coming soon. So okay, you wanted to talk about tactics because we talked about behind the net last week, and 
obviously it's a ton different. We broke down how it's different at five on four and five on five. But the one thing you brought up in our text thread that I think needs to be discussed here is seam passes. Because you and I both love seam passes. And it seems, huh, funny. It Ah, seems that seam passes get made more on the power play. And I mean, it's kind of obvious to figure out why, but do you see tactical changes that allow that to happen? Or is it just the space? So logically, having more space is going to open up more passing lanes. And if you want to make an extremely risky pass that has a high payoff, you're going to be more likely to complete that pass on the power play than you would be at even strength. That's just logic. That's just, that's very rational. It makes sense. So at even strength, only the best players in the world, the best playmakers are typically able to pull off a seam pass or it's complete blown coverage by a forward or defenseman who just lost their man or they lost their player and boom, backdoor pass, you've given up a goal. Around the NHL, who's making seam passes at even strength, you know, off the cycle? It's the Patrick Canes, it's the Matt Barzells, it's Mitch the Marner. Mitch Marners, Dreisaitl McDavid, it's the elite passers. Right. On the power play, more players are able to pull off those passes just because they're more available. And I think on the power play, that's your primary goal, is to create that seam pass. If you look at the best power plays in the NHL, you look at Boston, they want to make that seam pass to Pasternak. You look at Tampa, they want to make it to Stamkos or Kucherov. You look at Toronto, they want it to Matthews. You look at Winnipeg, they want it to Lani. The classic Ovechkin pass. They want that pass going through the seam. You want your best shooter firing a hard shot, top corner. You can pull that off on the power play a lot more than you can at even strength. So how does that change the defensive alignment? How does that change what the penalty kill is trying to do? Because at even strength, you can just kind of collapse in tight, put kind of a wedge in front of your net, you know, two defensemen and the low forward, and you're going to take away most of those passing lanes. On the penalty kill, how do you have to adjust because there's more of an opportunity for the power play to break you down? Right. So on the penalty kill a lot of teams have triggers and what triggers mean is you kind of stay in the coverage unless things happen so if a bobbled puck would be a trigger to pressure um sometimes playing on the backhand for certain players would be a trigger to pressure Uh, if a player has their back turned that's a trigger to pressure and so that's sort of where you would try and force the player into one of those trigger areas uh to do one of those things and then you could kind of ramp up the pressure and take it from that standpoint but a lot of teams are doing a one forward flush where they're it's kind of like the check press almost where you've got your three in the triangle and then you've got one kind of going around and pressuring the top and when needed they the two forwards they'll switch out so then the guy that's flushing goes back to the middle and the other guy kind of comes out so you've always got one guy consistently skating and applying some type of pressure and if he gets that chance to jump then he takes that jump and what they're hoping with that is that pressure will force a player to make a seam pass that wouldn't be as good if they were unpressured and maybe that gets picked off maybe it's not as accurate it's not in the sweet spot for a one-timer it's little things like that how is that different from your typical defensive zone coverage at 5-on-5? Five five? Well, so you've got your man-to-man coverage, which if you can get a seam pass in man-to-man coverage, I mean, that's the elite talent that we're talking about. That's Sidney Crosby. Yeah, like you're doing some stuff there. That's That takes some talent. Um, but you, so you can have man-to-man or you can have switches, so like each player covers a certain area of the ice kind of thing. Um, you don't want your D getting caught up at the circle I am not a huge fan of the man-on-man because like for me what happens if the two forwards that your defensemen are covering now come up to the top and you're leaving like a forward in front of the net and what if it's Brent Burns like that's it's just not good um you typically don't see too much man-to-man at the NHL level that's more of a junior style defense zone coverage right Uh, there are teams that use man-to-man it's just not as pronounced and a lot of them do execute switches uh, so it works a little bit better. But for the teams that play hard man-on-man, uh, like I don't like it because the second you run an accidental pick or you get even a shred of space, that seam pass can come across, and that's 
could be a face-off at center ice. So or for I'm just me, worried about the worst defender on your team. You see this in the NBA, too. You can just pick on someone. You can say, okay, who is the worst defensive player on the ice here? Let's go at that guy. Right. And I just think, like, obviously, the difference is, is there's five guys defending as opposed to four. So no one's ever, no one ever should be wide open. And if they are, that is a huge breakdown in defensive coverage. Whereas on the penalty kill, you could understand if a guy gets open if a few good passes are made. But even strength, there's no reason why a guy should be all alone, completely unguarded by anybody. Yeah, somebody screwed up if that happens. Oh yeah, and it happens. I mean, Leaf fans will be able to tell you that this is a regular occurrence over the past few seasons, but hey, it, it shouldn't be a both sides of the ice. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I, to be honest, I'm here for the goals. So, like, Just give me all the goals. Exactly. Outlaw defense. Outlaw defense. I mean, that's another conversation for another day. But the best rule changes in sports typically are the ones that make defense harder. You know, getting rid of the hand check in the NBA, making pass interference uh, rules a bit more strict in the NFL, opens up more space for the offense. Yet in the NHL, they haven't done as much lately over the last, let's say, decade. And I'd like to see them do more, but that might be another entire podcast in itself. Yeah, because I'm not necessarily sure, other because they reduced obstruction. Other than just call the rules properly, like, that would probably... Penalty rates have been low. Over the last decade, they've been very low relative to where they were in the 80s and 90s. And I don't know, it's, it's like the, the NHL doesn't want a lot of goals, and they should. So, and it's frustrating. Yeah, so I think... Five on five, like statistics, there's a reason that uh, a lot of the quote unquote fancy stats are done five on five and then on power play shorthanded because they're vastly different. You can't take someone's combined scoring chances because what if one team had eight power plays and the other team had three? Well, of course, the team with eight power plays is going to have more scoring chances. They damn well should. Or the player who gets a ton of power play time and is picking up secondary assists because he's playing on a unit with some extremely talented players versus the guy who's just crushing it at even strength, but he doesn't play on the power play. Tom Wilson comes to mind for me, and I know he's someone that we, you know, we hate for other reasons, but when you're just evaluating his play, some of his point production is actually very impressive when you consider the fact that he does not play on the power play. Yeah. And so his is basically five-on-five production, and then you have... Some other players who get boosted because they play heavy minutes on the power play, and I think Phil Kessel definitely comes to mind uh, from a couple seasons ago where he was playing on the power play and getting a ton of points. Tyler Bozak comes to mind for me when he was the fifth man on a unit with Mitch Marner, Nazem Kadri, JVR, and Morgan Riley. It was the best unit in the NHL, and Bozak was just kind of chilling on the left side of the ice, and he picked up a ton of points. Yeah. Okay, so I would say that's kind of... He puts a bow on even strength versus special teams. I don't know. Do you want to... Can we finish it with a couple of bullet points here? Just, uh, you know, take-home message. What did we learn? Differences between even strength and what power play slash penalty Professor kill? Professor Ian's take-home points? Um, the take-home points to me are that there's so much more space on special teams than there are than there is at even strength, and that's going to change up how you go about breaking down the defense and how you go about defending. And the biggest thing to me is transition at even strength. That's the name of the game. That's where most of the goals are scored within 5 to 10 seconds of gaining the zone. Whereas on the power play, you're setting up in formation, you're breaking down the defense in more of a kind of structured way, the same way we kind of see in football or basketball. And that changes the types of players that work really well on the power play versus what works at even strength. And it kind of changes the passes that you're able to pull off, which is the big thing for me. Alrighty. There are Ian's take-home points. All right, so that was my take-home point here. Rachel has a rant that she's going to go on for the Kovalev shift. Kovalev Shift brought to you by Major League Socks. You can use code STAFFGRAPH, that's one word, S-T-A-F-F-G-R-A-P-H, to get 15% off your first purchase. Rachel, what is your rant today for the Kovalev Shift? So, it's not exactly a secret that I used to work for the Devils. And there was an announcement made yesterday, and Ian, I think if you just want to maybe preview this in our text thread there's a lot of venting that goes on right 
I think there's a lot of venting on both sides. That's what I mean. Yeah, we, we do a lot of venting. We're close friends. And this rant has been how many months in the making? How many years in the making? Yeah, probably a few. Okay. So we're in the middle of a global pandemic right now. And this is what I get. Sixers and Devils at-will employees, which, having worked there, I can tell you everyone is an at-will employee, except for the players. We're informed so today... people who work in concessions, that's no, no, everyone no, in no, the No, 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 that's the full-time staff. Okay. Like, the ticket people, the sponsorship people, the marketing people, like, the people who sit at Prudential Center and in Camden. That's those people, the people that are there every day. Like me, I was one. Okay? They were informed of temporary salary reductions of up to 20% will be instituted for employees making $50,000 or more starting on April 15th. Okay, here's the deal. Josh Harris is worth $3.8 billion. He owns the Devils. He owns the Sixers. He also owns Crystal Palace in the English Premier League. He has Dignitas as like a video game thing. Both him and David Blitzer, who are the majority owners of HBSC, which is like the MLSE equivalent, own like venture capitalist firms. And they're both worth, I think David Blitzer's worth almost $2 billion. So I would say I've had interactions with David Blitzer. Nice man. I don't have a problem with him. Josh Harris coming out and saying he can't afford to pay his at-will employees who make more than $50,000. Like, first of all, if you want to reduce salaries for like your CEO and all the people who make upwards of $150,000 to $200,000 a year, like, okay, that makes sense. Maybe reduce them by 20%. Uh, I made in and around that salary range when I worked for the Devils. And let me tell you something, it is not even enough to live in New Jersey. And God forbid, because some of those people live in New York City too. So there are people that work for the Devils and the Sixers now that aren't going to be able to pay their rent. They aren't going to be able to provide for their kids because this guy who's worth almost $4 billion doesn't want to pay salaries. You have got to be kidding me. Like, to me, Did you see the Boston Bruins tweet that they put out a few days ago? Oh, that's Jeremy Jacobs. Is, he had to be bullied into doing something that wasn't even good enough. But to me, like I worked for that hockey team, and I am still friends with a lot of people who worked there. And I can't say a whole lot of what I want to say, but this is unacceptable. You cannot leave your employees high and dry when they slave to sell tickets for your shitty hockey team. <laughs> okay? So now, you, what, are you just not going to pay them commission, even though they're working their tails off to try and find sponsorships and season ticket holders who are all angry with you, by the way, because of comments and things that you continue to do? This is the same guy that shut down a kid's minor league soccer game so he could land his helicopter on their soccer field. This is the kind of guy we're talking about. He funded a condo firm to knock down a hospital so that condos could be built. And that hospital provided for uh, people that were less fortunate so that they could afford um, health care. That's the kind of person we're dealing with here. So there's been a lot of people that I've spoken to since this news came out that either work there or used to work there. And they're all angry. And some of them are wondering what they're going to do because rent's high. Like, it's, I don't know if anyone knows how high the rent is in New York City, but it ain't cheap to live there. And Hoboken, which is where a lot of people live that work for the Devils, ain't cheap either. Like, that's where I lived. And what's worse is that this happened, and I'm not even remotely surprised. Because this is exactly the type of thing I expected from him. Everyone came out and said, oh, look, they're going to pay their concession stands and they're going to pay their security guards. Yes, that's great. They should be doing that. And then this comes out. Oh, no, our full-time staff isn't going to get paid their full salaries because I'm worth almost $4 billion and I don't want to pay them so that they can afford to live during this pandemic while I fly my helicopter from the Prudential Center on the helipad that I built to my building in New York City. Like, it's just, he's not a good human being. And that's my rant. Because I am so tired of it. 
a lot of billionaires are showing their uh, true colors during this crisis right now, including the president of the United States. And yeah, it's not yeah. great. Be Mark Cuban. Don't be Josh Harris. That's my be better. Exactly. Most billionaires out there need to be better right now. Exactly. Come on, you have the you have the power to do a lot of good right now, and you're choosing not to. Be better, most people. Come on, we need your help. Exactly. All right, let's get on to some more positive stuff here. We're going to be doing some top threes throughout this quarantine because there isn't as much hockey to talk about lately. I know last week we talked about some of our top three shows that we're watching, top three movies. Uh, what's some other stuff that we're going to be talking about today? Uh, so producer Connor challenged there's a bunch of challenges kind of going on where it's like your favorite this or do 10 push-ups or whatever it is and they're on instagram they're on twitter so he tagged me in something on twitter last night and i said i'd do it on the podcast and i roped ian into doing it too so i'm gonna do my top three soccer players ian's gonna do basketball but they're not like top three who's the best kind of thing there are players that aren't necessarily the best but they mean something to you so they're your personal favorites so I think we'll start there. And then um, Ian's been playing a ton of video games. Um, I I can't believe I'm going to admit this. I have never played video games. So what? Yeah, I just never played them. Uh, other than like, wow. I want to say like Game Boy and like DS or something. But I like, we've had Playstations and stuff and I've never really played. So Rachel, now is the time to get into it. Yeah, I think Myrtle, I'll just focus on doing NHL my research. 20, and I'm going to be playing with him this week, so it's a, it's a good time. All right, so we'll start. Um, we'll do like a player each. I don't know, and then we'll we'll do three players each. I have a quick three for soccer, if that's okay. Oh, do it. And then, oh, well, I don't really have a three for basketball, I'm not going to lie. That's all oh, right. Oh, yeah, that's I do. Right. My- I do. Who am I kidding? So yes, I do. It's called... Uh, I think it was called La Masia in Barcelona. Messi, Iniesta, and Xavi on those tiki-taka oh, teams. yes. So yes. Those three just whipping the ball around, quick little one-touch passes. Uh, Messi, in my opinion, is the greatest soccer player of all time. Now, I grew I up in his era, and I didn't grow up in the Pele era or the Maradona era or uh, Johan Cruyff, so I'm a bit biased in that regard, but... I just can't get enough of watching what Lionel Messi does in open space and Iniesta and Xavi's ability to just quickly work those passes to get him into open space is beautiful to watch. It was art and uh, I couldn't get enough of those three together on the pitch. Yeah, those three, uh, re- they kind of revolutionized how how things were done and Spain even took, they didn't have Messi, but Spain took Iniesta and Xavi and, and kind of parlayed that into a World Cup and a European Championship. Using David Villa really filled that role. I want to say it was 2010 where he just exploded for a bunch of goals in the World Cup. Yeah, that was David Villa. <laughs> All right, so then those are. I'll do my basketball first then because you did soccer first. Um, Demar Derozan, Steph Curry, and Steve Nash. Okay, Steve Nash is my number one. He's the guy who got me into basketball. Uh, I grew up my hair. Right around that time, because oh god, I need to see a photo of this. And Anakin Skywalker from the the third uh, Star Wars movie. This is two thousand five ish. Two thousand five. Steve Nash won his MVP, and the third Star Wars movie came out. That should give you an idea of how uh, bad my taste was and stuff at the time. The fact that I thought that the third Star Wars movie was really good. To be fair, compared to the other prequels, the third movie is a masterpiece. Because those other two movies are complete trash. Yeah, I um, can't have an opinion because I've never seen it. That's fair. Don't watch the prequels. They're awful. Or just none but of it. DeMar DeRozan, the human being, uh, would yeah. be in my top three just because um, what he did for me when I was going through my depression, the fact that a pro athlete had come out and talked about it. Mm-hmm. I think he was one of the first major pro athletes Him and Kevin Love. to come out. Yeah, no yeah. one was coming out and talking about this stuff, and DeMar DeRozan admitted that he was going through depression. That just that was really important to me. Now, DeMar DeRozan, the basketball player, uh, maybe my least favorite player of the last 20 years. I, he, I had to stop watching the Raptors because of him and Dwayne Casey and all the long two-pointers and terrible offense they were running. I love basketball so much, and they were just playing a game from the 90s. When they, they hadn't revolutionized to the, the three-point game and understanding how modern offenses should work. Then Nick Nurse came in and actually said, hey, this is how we should be running things. So that's, that's a bit of a rant there on the basketball side of things. Um, LeBron James is just, to me, uh, 
just a genius offensively. And even though I know a lot of people get upset with him when it comes to how much of a diva he is or the fact that he, he knows where all the cameras are. I mean, honestly, I, I kind of like that. I like that he's an entertainer. I like that he has a bit of that P.K. Subban. Like, yeah, but you know, he's also really charitable. Does he not fund his school? Yeah, he. I don't know how much money. Was it $100 million that he put into a school for low-income kids, for African-Americans? Less to, than uh, he put more in than Josh Harris. That I can promise you. Put more in than Donald Trump. I'll tell you that for Oh, sure. yeah, I'll tell uh, you that for free. And so Steve Nash and LeBron James, I love players who have great vision and are selfless and they when they make the right basketball play. If if the right play to most players is to take that Kobe Bryant, you know, shot with two guys in your face, Steve Nash and LeBron James are, are, are kicking it to the open man in the corner. And I just always love that philosophy in basketball. And then my for my third favorite player of all time, I'm gonna put a few players into this. I'm gonna cheat and I'm gonna say the worker bees, you know, the the Zach Hyman types. Uh, who just, they put in a ton of work defensively, they sacrifice their body, they take the charge, they they box out, they go hard for the rebound, even though they're not the most skilled players offensively. Kyle Lowry. Yeah, Kyle Lowry comes to mind, Danny Green comes to mind. Uh, if you watch P.J. Tucker on the Houston Rockets, I don't know if you ever got to watch Shane Battier. He's just brilliant just to listen to him talk about the game because he would study players' tendencies and force them to do things they didn't want to do. It's part of the reason he was such an amazing defender. And the last guy I'm going to finish with is Patrick Beverly. He currently plays in the Clippers. He talks a lot of trash. He is borderline insane when the game is on the line. He's he's constantly uh, pushing the line. He's, he's constantly trying to, to cross the line between the rules. But I always played like that in pickup and I always looked up to players like that. To the point where I, when I was in L.A., I had a chance to buy a L.A. Clippers Kawhi Leonard jersey. And instead, I bought a L.A. Clippers Patrick Beverly jersey. Oh just because God. that's the kind of guy I want on my team. I want the guy who's going to do all the little things that help you win. Even if it's not putting up points. Other than points, what can you do to help me win? Those are the guys that I want on my team. Alrighty. Mine is not going to be nearly as long-winded as I think I'm just going to list them. Um... Bastian Schweinsteiger. Um, he is my favorite soccer player ever. Um, he's also a really nice guy. Um, I have spent time with him and kicked the ball around maybe a few times, and uh, he's he's great. He also literally bled for the German national team in the World Cup final and continued to play, just wiping the blood on his jersey. And eventually the Germans won that game and won the World Cup, and uh, he's a Bayern hero, and so for me, um, I absolutely love him. He is known as the football god in Germany, and th- th- you don't get that name in Germany by accident. So for me, that's... He's basically a 1970s hockey player, but playing soccer, and it was awesome. And he commands the pitch. Like he, when he, He's like a field general. When he's out there, he controls the entire game. And what's funny is that he wasn't even that athletic, you know what I mean? Like, he wasn't fast, he wasn't, like, but he just controlled the game in the middle of the field. Yeah, I mean, he's, like, he, his calves are enormous. Like, those things are the size of my quads. Um, But just the ability to show up when the team needed him most, you never had to be like, oh, is he going to show up and play today? Like, you knew you were getting a performance out of him when the games mattered most. Um, and he, he locked down when it, when it really mattered and was part of that team at Bayern that won five trophies in a single year. And so he's, he's my all time favorite. Um, Seba Javinko. Oh, Seba. He, well, TFC legend. Seba? Yeah. That's <laughs> how everyone calls him Seba. Okay. Maybe I'm the um, loser who calls him Sebastian. Yeah, you are. Um, he Toronto legend, like absolute TFC legend, and another nice guy. Cute kids, very cute kids. Um, but he, I have a hot take about him. I'm not uh, sure if this is gonna. Be are you gonna make not. me angry about it? Or no, I think I think it's very positive. I think in the last ten years, in his prime, he was the best player in the MLS. Yes, absolutely. Because usually it's, you know, faded stars who come to the MLS, you know, like David Beckham in his mid-30s. But Javinko was one of the few players who was in his prime athletically and was in the MLS. He hadn't gone to Europe yet, and he was just torching that league. Yeah, and it took teams, like, years to figure out how to defend him properly. 
And even then, he was still scoring and setting up Altidore. So for me, um, Javinko, he basically, him and Michael Bradley basically took TFC out of ruins and irrelevancy and brought them to a dynasty that we're still technically in. Um, like, the team has been unbelievable. I was there the night he scored the goal to send TFC to the playoffs, and I'm actually looking up at a jersey hanging on my wall of his that he wore. And so, for me, like, he's he's brought Toronto soccer to a new level, and um, that meant a lot in my family, so there was that. And he's like five foot three, and he was just you couldn't stop him. Me and just like, I, so I'm taller than Javinko, and I'm five five. Seba is five four. Yeah, okay. He is little. It says five three here be. on the internet. Here, he I don't is, know if he was in like. Yeah, he's little. Might have had some lifts in his shoes. That yeah, day he you might have. In at five four. <laughs> um, and then my other favorite player, uh, and this is like way out of left field, is Leon Goretzka. He currently plays for Bayern. Um, he's a beast in FIFA. Yeah, I I have a really soft spot for him. Um, and he just started a foundation, him and Joshua Kimmich. Um, to, it's called We Kick Corona, and they're basically raising money for medical funds and, and all that. And it's not like they're trying to get people to donate. It's they're getting soccer players together to donate. And they've each donated a million euros. Uh, Lewandowski's donated. A bunch of the German national team players have donated a million euros, like, they're raising a ton of money and a million euros is not like that's there are soccer players that are donating more than billionaire owners on, in North America. That's how that's kind of the magnitude we're talking about here. And it's one point five million Canadian dollars. Exactly. Which is what the Jets pledged to their working staff. And there's multiple people doing that. And so um, I've always loved how Goretzka plays and since he was very young um and so for me uh yeah I would say I've got a soft spot for him for sure um but in terms of players that are like fun to watch um Ibrahimovic Andrea Pirlo I've never seen anyone take a free kick like that um and I, Zidane in his prime was one of my favorite players. I, of the all time. headbutt is glorious, and then everyone made fun of me so much because he was my favorite player at the time going into that game. And yeah, I would uh, say the, didn't end great. The one guy that has to be mentioned is Mario Goetze, the guy who scored the World Cup winning goal and incited me breaking my hand, punching the ceiling in excitement. Um, of course, you broke your hand in celebration. Well, listen, I. That entire World Cup run, I remember watching all of it with my grandparents, and that was probably, like, one of the peak, peak moments of my life. Just, like, the utter shock on my Opa's face when Gutsa scored was, like, it was so... I'll never forget the look on his face, and both my grandparents were crying. Like, it was unbelievable. And then that that was the last major tournament either of them watched, so it was a pretty good and memory. he was off the bench in that game, if I'm not mistaken. So, Closa broke the all-time World Cup scoring record. Uh, in the game against Brazil, and then he was playing in the World Cup final. He came off, and Gotza went in for him, and him and uh, Andrea Schürrle kind of hooked up for that beautiful goal. And there's a documentary about his life since, and so he's he's great. Um, and I would say none of them are. I would well Schweinsteiger's pretty an all time great in Germany. Um, but yeah, those are my those are my favorites. What about uh, video games? This is your area of expertise. Okay, before I go, real quick, if you had to pick your top three video games, you've got to pick, like, games on your phone, I guess. You've got to pick... I don't know if you ever played, like, The Sims on the PC. No, I've never played Sims. I did play... So, my grandma bought me a PlayStation 1 when I was, like, five years old or whatever, and I played Toy Story on it every Saturday morning because Saturday morning was the only time I was allowed to play, like, video games. So, I had, like... NHL 2000, maybe? And Who was on the cover? Oh, God, I don't know. Um, was it Pronger or Owen Nolan? Oh, I think it might have been Owen Nolan. Um, but yeah, I can tell you, I always played as Mike Johnson. Um, so whatever team he was on, that was the team I was playing with. My parents definitely set that up for me, because I was like, I just want to do that. Um, Toy Story I played. Um, I don't know, like... 
I never really. What do you play on your phone right now? Like, what's your oh like, Civilization uh, game, game? Revolution? I like that. Okay, it's like All a strategy right. game. Yeah, what do I play on my phone? Uh, I don't have games on my phone because I try. I feel like I'm on my phone enough that I don't want to be on it, like to play video games. I don't know. I think I'm weird. I just don't play video 2048 games. 2048 was my addiction oh, for a, a few years. Game. That's and a fun game. Right now, it's balls with a Z. I'm not, it's you shoot these balls at bricks and. Uh, Do computer games fi- count? Because I used to play like. Of course. The one where you would shoot the balloons. I want to say like balloons or whatever it was. And I can't even remember. I, I used to play like well, I still do uh, chess, whether it's online or like in person. I play a ton of chess. We played a bunch of that at March break camp, and uh, that's yeah. where I got like half decent at chess. I'm still terrible, but I love learning chess. how to castle and learning some like you know like, <laughs> simple strategy. Yeah. All right. So I never knew what the hell that was. I'd see the computer do it, and I go, "What that? Do you Is know what glitching out? Hang here? on. Do you know what en passant means? I do not. What oh, okay. Mean? Yeah, we're not explaining that on the podcast. Uh, Is this like some deep like stress uh, chess strategy? No, or? it's literally just a move with a pawn. Um, okay, oh, so God. what are your video games that you can advise people to purchase? I know NHL and FIFA are huge ones because like the boys on the hockey team are constantly fighting about it. Okay, am I advising people to purchase them right now, or am I talking about my top three games of all time? Top three games of all time. Okay, because I'm a sports gamer, and my brother makes fun of me because he says that I actually don't play games, because my brother is obsessed with, like, Animal Crossing just came out. Or I don't know what that is. Or he'll be playing whatever the new Skyrim, or whatever the new uh, Dark Souls, or whatever. He's obsessed with all these games. I always played NHL, and Madden, and 2K, and MLB The Show, and... Uh, oh, you know what game, game I used FIFA. to play? Mario Kart. Oh, oh. Mario, Kart. Mario Kart DS, I'd play yep, online. DS. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to go with my three favorites of all time. NHL 09, I got a lot of playtime out Is that of. the one with FNUF? Uh, yep, FNUF on the cover. Calgary FNUF, that was Calgary before he was FNUF. traded. Uh, NHL 20 right now, I'm playing so much of. Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, especially if you can play with friends. It's like kind of the only way to socialize these Does days. Does your internet work? Yo, I have a wired connection now because I was playing with Steve Dangle and company and I kept lagging out of games and, and there was, he was yelling at me, telling me I had to get a wired connection. I so, love that you uh, got a me- wired connection, not for like your podcasts or anything else that you do work-wise. No, for video games. I, I, you can't be lagging out. Oh, you can't God. See, I don't even know so, what that means. Wow. Okay, so when you play with five other people on your side and then six what? other people on the other side, it's hard for your connection to stay solid if you don't have a great connection mm-hmm. and i my connection would be bad and i'd get kicked out of the game oh oh that would be yeah, frustrating so I, so I needed to improve my connection so i got a wired connection we, we found like a 50 foot uh cable i've got it running through the ceiling and it's uh it's a good time now uh, wow. So that's NHL. My my favorite 2K game of all time is 2K11. That's one where uh, they got all the Jordan stuff. But the real reason is because the blacktop mode was so fun. I'd play that with my friends every Friday. It was a good time. And if I had to pick an NFL game, I think I'd go NFL Street. That's what actually got me into football. But if I had to pick my three favorite games outside of actual uh, sport games, did you ever play RuneScape? What? I, oh, no, I played Neopets. <laughs> okay, Neopets counts. Or Webkins, whatever that was. My sister had a ton of those. After the Leafs got eliminated by the Hurricanes in 2002, oh. when, when, uh, when Jelena scored that overtime goal, uh, I made a Neopets account the next morning called Kane Suck. <laughs> and that, was my, that was my Neopets account. Bunch of jerks. Yeah, screw those guys. Uh, RuneScape. Let's let's throw Neopets in my top three, and Modern Warfare Two. That was my gun game. Oh, okay. I played that a couple times with my brother. What was it? Rust, the little small map. Oh, that was a good one. Or I can't remember the one where there are the uh, the buildings on opposite sides of the map. Don't ask me. Oh, Modern Warfare Two is such a fun game. But we should get out of here because I'm I'm nerding out on video games, and Rachel has no idea what I'm talking about. Yeah, I need to go back to studying blockchain amino acids. No, buy a PS4, get NHL Twenty. I and have a my PS4. Squad. I use it for movies, and I don't know. But it, realistically, I use it for video breakdowns. <laughs> 
NHL 20 is like 23 bucks right now. Consider it market research. Consider it like you, you can e- explain the differences between NHL 20 and real hockey, and you can get into talks about strategy. Honestly, I find that a lot of interesting strategy comes from video games. You look at people in Madden who went for it on fourth down all the time. Oh, that God. actually reflects what you should be doing in real life. In 2K, all people did was go for three-pointers and dunks. And then that's what the Houston uh, Rockets decided to do. NHL 20, there are some strategic elements that you can look at and say, hey, maybe we should apply this to real life. I'm telling you, there's something there. $23, Rachel. Yeah, I think I'm going to focus on my research and maybe once that's done, I'll consider it because priorities. Market um, research. But we'll be NHL back 20. <laughs> next Tuesday. Yeah, you, your priorities are NHL 20 very clearly based on our text thread. Mine are not. Um... But we'll be back next Tuesday with whatever other tactic we want to talk about. And maybe I won't be in as owly of a mood because maybe ownership for various things and maybe Jeff Bezos won't will be done being a dick. That's highly unlikely, but who knows? If there's one thing Karl Marx has taught me, it's that <laughs> billionaires are always going to do the right thing. Yes! Alright, let's get out of here on that communist point. Let's mm-hmm. get out of here. <laughs> Alright, we'll be back next week, everyone. Stay healthy. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Staff and Graph podcast. You can check out Rachel Dory's work at The First Pass, and Ian Tullock's written work can be found at The Athletic and The Leafs Geeks podcast on whatever platform you're listening to this. Also, be sure to follow these nerds on Twitter at Rachel Dory and at Ian Graff. <laughs>